before Mother Irmala starts, I just want to remind everyone there are some points here that it may be a little bit new, uh, but please, whatever you're on Skype, free conferencing, or just calling on the telephone, please mute that Mother Irmala can speak without interruptions. Thank you. Okay. So I hope that most of you have the summary paper. And last week we went over the first part of the Nectar of Instruction. This Nectar of Instruction is an incredible book. Just 11 verses, and in 11 verses it takes you from the very beginning of spiritual life to the very end of spiritual life. It's an incredible guide. We were talking a little bit at the questions and answers last time or maybe it was in our Bhagavatam class, about the path of devotion, different stages of devotion. And this, this nectar of instruction, Supadesa Amrita, Vipika Swami, which he got directly from the instruction of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Krishna in the mood of a devotee, in the mood of a sadhana, in the subject devotee, takes us again from the very beginning to the very end. How do we start? So last week we went over that first we have to get ourselves together. Right? First you have to get yourself together. Now, sometimes a, a person, when they're looking for a husband or wife, they're just thinking about what qualities they want in the other person. But first thing is they have to be worthy themselves. You know, I want a wife who's beautiful and intelligent and a really good cook and organized and a wonderful devotee. But, you know, do they stop and think, well, what am I? Kind of a person you know, if you want if you want a Cardella Mooney, you've got to be a Devahuti. If you want a Devahuti, you've got to be a Cardella Mooney. So before one can have relationships with the other devotees, relationships with Krishna, one has to first get oneself together. So the first three verses were about that. First verse was about controlling the senses, not engaging, not through artificial repression, but through using everything in Krishna's service, body, mind, and word. Text two and three was about actually two of the six symptoms of surrender, accepting what's favorable and rejecting what's unfavorable, particularly uh, or hinders and helps, <clears throat> particularly what hinders are too much of things or the wrong kind of things. Too much money, too much knowledge, too many rules, too many achievements, the wrong kind of things, the wrong kind of friends, the wrong kind of talking. Solving the simple living under the shelter of Srimati Radhanani and the things that help Enthusiastic, confident, patient. All right. And now we're going to go on to our relationships. Prabhupada makes some statements in these purports here that are, are really astonishing about the importance of this section of the Upadeshama. Okay. I'm going to go to 4, 5, and 6. Basically, 4 is a description of the loving exchanges, what they are. 5 is a description of how do we discriminate with whom to have those loving exchanges. And 6 is what criteria not to use. So 5 is what criteria to use, and 6 is what criteria not to use. So first, we're going to make a 
Pachipinati, Guya Makyati, Pritchiti, Bunse, Bojayate, Taiva, Sadvidim, Priti Lakshanam. Offering gifts in charity, accepting charitable gifts, revealing one's mind and confidence, inquiring confidentially, accepting prasad and offering prasad are the six symptoms of love shared by one devotee and another. So, Priti, love. These are symptoms of love, and as we said many times, these are ways both of expressing existing love and their ways to develop love not yet existent. You'll notice that there's really three categories, gifts, confidences, and food. And these are all in the, in each of them, there's giving and receiving. Giving and receiving. So now that we've worked on the spiritual rather than the bodily level by having sense control, avoiding hindrance, and accepting what helps. Now we're fit to have these loving exchanges. Now we're fit. I, I can't exchange gifts with you. I can't exchange food with you. I can't exchange confidences with you if I can't control my mind, if I can't control my anger, if I'm associating with non-devotees, if I'm not enthusiastic, confident, and patient. Otherwise, my association with you will be disturbing rather than pleasing. Of course, at the same time, it's by the association of the devotees and by the loving exchanges of the devotees that we have the ability to control our senses, to control our mind, to accept what helps and to avoid what hinders. At the same time, we should understand that the degree of intimacy we can have with devotees depends upon and how satisfying our relationship we have, have with devotees depends upon how well we first have ourselves under control. Prasadam, gifts and competencies. Giving them and getting them. I, I remember many, many years ago, I don't remember how long ago, but it was decades. My husband saying something to me about the value of being able to receive. Now, you have some people that are very good at giving and not very good at receiving, and some people that are very good at receiving and not very good at giving. For me, I really had a problem with receiving. I felt that, well, if I receive things, then that puts me in the role of a master. It makes me proud. Oh, you should give things to me. And my husband very nicely pointed out that, no, receiving means that you're humble. You realize you can't do everything yourself. You're dependent on others. I remember Ayindra saying this. You know, Ayindra was the one who revived the 24-hour kirtan in Vindavad. In the beginning, he had to do a lot by himself, and he was sometimes singing for 12 or 13 hours a day in the often harsh climate of Vrindavan. Well, doing that severely affected his voice. So at the end of his time with us, he could only sing for maybe 30 or 45 minutes. But he pointed out that by losing his own singing ability, uh, the same singing ability, he was forced to engage others. He was forced to bring others in. And he was marveling at how wonderful that was. And Krishna often puts us in a situation when we have to admit, you know, I can't do this alone. I need help. I, one of my godbrothers, who's lived pretty much outside the association of devotees for a long time, but who's written many books about Christian consciousness, once told me, I come to ISKCON only to give and not to take. And it, it struck me as kind of odd, and then I saw that later on he had some difficulties, even just with the four regulated principles. And I was thinking... It's really dangerous if we think 
that I'm only going to give and I don't need to take anything, that I'm not in need of anything. Okay, I'll, I'll give my preaching, I'll give prasadam, I'll give gifts, but for myself, I'm self-sufficient. No, the devotee is, is humble and says, yes, I need the help of the devotee. And then sometimes you have the other problem. You have people who come, they take prasadam, they listen to the classes, they're receiving the various gifts that Srila Prabhupada's offered us. And yet they're not giving anything in exchange. You know, people, they, they just show up, take something, and then go. They never offer any time. They never offer any money. That's an ingrate. The first principle of working at Krishna Explains in the third chapter of Bhagavad Gita is that if you don't give sacrifice, you can't be happy in this life or the next. Whatever we receive, we should be grateful. Now, how do these six loving exchanges contribute to our own advancement? And Prabhupada says, makes three statements in this purport to text four that I find to be very astonishing. He says, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness has been established to facilitate these six kinds of loving exchanges between the devotees. Wow. That's what it's for. <laughs> That's what it's for. I mean, obviously, one could become Krishna conscious without a society. We could read Prabhupada's books, we could listen to Srila Prabhupada's tapes, right? We could have some casual exchanges for, for Sangha here and there. But why did Prabhupada start a society? So much trouble to have a society, so much trouble to maintain a society. And that's why it was established. It wasn't established to facilitate criticism. It wasn't established to facilitate politics. It wasn't established to facilitate ordinary mundane dharma. It it wasn't established to uh, to facilitate mundane culture. It was established to facilitate loving exchanges between devotees. Sometimes devotees ask the question that in the spiritual world, are there loving exchanges between the devotees? And the answer is absolutely yes. There's love between Lalita and Vishaka, between Nanda and Yashoda, between Yudhamandri and Ratimandri. If you want to know how much love exists between the devotees, you just simply read the song, Sri Rupa Manjari Pada, by Nivasana Das Thakur. I asked one devotee the other day, <laughs> we were having a discussion uh, by email with a devotee, tell president in America, about the Krishna and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Who knows Radharani better? Who's the highest divinity? And who has the greatest exchanges of rasa with the devotees? So on this point of who is the higher manifestation of divinity, I, so I asked uh, one devotee, actually, actually several devotees, for their opinion. Okay, who's the highest divinity? In some cases I asked them, who's the highest divinity? But in one case I just said, who's the highest divinity? And the devotee looked at me and said, well, Rupa Mantri. <laughs> That was so fun. But that's the, the mood of the devotee. If you, if you read about the love that Nilotan Madhas Thakur has for Rupa Mandri, it's amazing. And it's far greater love than we can conceive with any kind of our relationships in this world. He's saying, Rupa Mandri, you're the goal of my japa, you're the goal of my austerity. If I can't see you from the moment, I feel like I'm bitten by a snake and filled with poison. So such love is between the devotees. And why is such love possible between the devotees? We discussed this because, because Krishna is the center. 
the scribe of Jesuit speaking about King Kunti asking to break the tie of familial affection, soul to soul via the super soul. But first one has to have one's relationship with Krishna. Again, this is why the first three verses come before the fourth verse. Why the first three verses come before the fourth verse. First I have to establish my, my uh, Sambandha. I am Krishna's servant. I am Krishna's servant. The person who's going to meet all my needs is Krishna. One devotee recently told me, well, yeah, I, I used to get the kids up and have a morning program, but I thought it would make my wife happy, and when it didn't make my wife happy, I stopped doing it. So this is the problem. We don't have all of our needs met by Krishna. If we're trying to get our needs met by another jiva, then we cannot actually have a loving relationship with that jiva. That's the first extraordinary sentence of Prabhupada, at least in my opinion. And then Prabhupada goes on, society, the society was started single-handedly, but because people are coming forward and dealing with the give-and-take policy, the society is now expanding all over the world. So the second astonishing statement is Srila Prabhupada is attributing the success of the ISKCON movement to the exchanges of love between the devotees. Amazing. You know, we might think, well, the success of the Hare Krishna movement, whatever success it has had, we can argue about how much success yeah. it's had and how many failures it's had, etc., and in what areas. But I think everyone would agree that in many ways, the spread of the Hare Krishna movement has been very successful. I even see the existence of sister organizations as signs of its success, not as signs of its failure. So Prabhupada says that this success is happening because of this given type policy. Prabhupada doesn't say the success is happening because we're collecting a lot of money. He doesn't say the success is happening because of very expert business management. He doesn't say the success is happening because we have many beautiful temples. He doesn't even say the success is happening because of his books. He says the success is happening because of his giving tables. Now, obviously, that's not the only cause for the success. However, here in this particular Srila Prabhupada is attributing our success to that. How interesting. So we have come to this Krishna conscious society in order to facilitate loving exchanges with devotees, and that is how we will be successful in spreading Krishna consciousness to the world. What is the thing that drives people away from practicing Krishna consciousness? Now, I haven't taken some kind of scientific survey, but I would guess that one of the main causes of people becoming discouraged in their spiritual life, I'm sure there are others, and I'm sure there's individual reasons, but one of the main reasons that I hear over and over again is if they're not perceiving that there's a give and take of love going on among the devotees. Then the third amazing thing that Prabhupada said there is the life of the Krishna conscious society is nourished by these six types of loving exchanges among the members. Again, Srila Prabhupada, what's nourishing? What's nourishing our society? Your Prabhupada's not speaking about our individual spiritualism. From a society. So all three of these statements deal with the society's position. And they're all based on loving exchange. Hi, now, Srila Prabhupada is so, it, it, it's so wonderful. Uh, so, so sweet. So clever. Uh, and that, what does Prabhupada say is the best charity? The best charity is giving transcendental literature and giving the whole name. 
that's the best charity. Obviously, uh, that's not the only charity. It's not the only gift that one should give. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu told Sanatana Goswami that when you go to Vrindavan, you should provide for the residents the food and the food for the visiting Bengali devotees. So, uh, we find that the devotees are doing this throughout Chaitanya Lila and, of course, in the Bhagavatam, but I think Chaitanya Lila is a better model for us today in terms of structuring society than is the Bhagavatam. Uh, by better, I mean that we can relate to it and it deals much more with the, much, much more closer to the time, place, and circumstance in which we're in. So, we see that in Chaitanya Lila, that the devotees are giving each other gifts on all levels. They're giving each other clothing, they're giving each other housing, they're giving each other care, uh, in, in all levels, on all levels. So uh, that kind of gift is there, but the best gift is Shastra and Nam. Shastra and Nam. If you only, if you only give people help on the other levels, then it's compared to going to save a person who's drowning and you only come out with their coat. Now, if there's a choice between the person and their clothes, you'd rather save the naked person than only save the clothes. However, generally, if you save a drowning person, you save them with their clothes. If you pull them out of the water naked, they may be a little awkward situation for them. So the Vedic society provides not only for spiritual gifts, but also for the material gifts. And this is described throughout the Bhagavatam about a perfect society. Now, there's abundant food, abundant clothing, abundant spiritual entertainment, uh, everything. Just uh, beautiful parks and gardens, pure air, pure soil, pure, pure water. And the people who read in the reign of Ramachandra, how people's minds are very peaceful, there's no anxiety. So in a Krishna conscious society, there should be harmony for the body, harmony for the mind as well as spiritual instruction for the soul. However, without the spiritual, the other things are basically useless. Can you hear me, Prabhu? Yes, yeah, Ramananaji, go ahead. I'm sorry, we had a problem here. But we're all connected again, so if we could just go ahead and continue. Okay, we'll go on and... and Thank you very uh, much. Maybe in our hurry can discuss that with some of them later. All right. Where I was ending was we're getting to the point in the purport where Prabhupada's speaking about with whom not to have the six loving exchanges. And he's saying not to have them, particularly with Maya bodies or atheists. However, we note that we do not have any signs at any of our temples or restaurants saying no Maya bodies or atheists allowed. So we have not only public programs where we're jugging up those out in the street. And anybody, the, the worst reprobate, can see uh, We allow anyone generally to come to our, our public programs. We give prasadam to everybody. So what does Prabhupada mean here? Right? What does he mean? So he means not on the intimate level. This is also discussed in depth by Bhaktivinoda Thakur and Bhaktiloka and his uh, commentary on text two, on verses 2 and 3. Not to become intimate. Well, then we might all have a problem that we might have family members that are Mayavadis or atheists. You run into this a lot. I think whether you're an American, whether you're Russian, whether you're Indian, whatever you are, 
there's a good chance that you're going to have some family members that are Maya bodies or atheists. So one should be careful. One should be careful. We should certainly be kind to our family members, but we should avoid, especially intimately you're dealing online, and especially in terms of spiritual subject matter, and especially being careful to hear their uh, spiritual talks, which may be blasphemous or you know, in some way that would be a disturbance for us. So how to do this, how to be kind to our family members so that they may eventually come to Krishna consciousness because of us and yet not become adversely affected by their association is a very difficult and delicate art which I think each of us has to manage somewhat differently. We can just speak about the principle. In this purport also, Srila Prabhupada says, quoting Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, that if you eat food cooked by materialistic persons, your mind will become wicked. And the, one of the very first instructions Srila Prabhupada gave to the devotees in the very beginning of the movement was not to eat food cooked by non-devotees. Uh, particularly, they'll say, not to eat grains cooked by non-devotees, but in general. And there was one letter I read recently where Prabhupada said, you shouldn't even take water from someone unless they're initiated. And I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> and he said, he said, this shouldn't be discussed. And uh, this, you know, in emergency situations, you can, you can do whatever you need. But I thought, wow, not even to take water, except an initiated person. What a level of strictness. I, I certainly cannot claim that I have ever taken water from a non-devotee. But in general, we should not be taking things from non-devotees. And Prabhupada says that only a very advanced devotee can use anyone's contribution to further the Krishna consciousness movement. This is also a problem with money. In fact, particularly, we might say that it's a problem with money. It can be a problem with food, because the food you eat directly affects your consciousness, but also a problem with money. Therefore, Raghunathasa Swami, you know, at first he was using his father's money to feed Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And then after a while, he stopped, after a couple of years, he said, I don't want to do this anymore. And he gradually decreased his dependence on others for his food until he was eating thrown out food. And for a long, long time, I couldn't understand why wouldn't he use his father's money to serve Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And then I had several experiences in my life that brought me to understand that. One was I was at one temple that was being lavishly funded by one wealthy person who wasn't personally there. And I saw that many of the devotees, especially the ones who were receiving salaries from this wealthy person, became lazy and neglectful in their service. And I thought, oh, okay. I've also seen that if we're dependent on gifts from materialistic people, that there's going to be a tendency to compromise our principles in order to please those materialistic people who are maintaining them. And the tendency is very strong. We saw this happen even with Dronacharya and Vishnu. What to speak of anybody else? So one should be very, very careful. If we receive anything from materialistic people, it should certainly all be used directly for the deity and not for our personal self. As far as possible. Now let's go on to... So we've spoken a little bit, a little bit about with whom to have these exchanges and with whom not to have these exchanges. In a very broad term. Having with devotees, don't have them with my buddies and atheists. But now Rupa Goswami is going to say, okay, it's not enough just to say you should have these exchanges with devotees because not all devotees can be, can, 
you have these exchanges with in exactly the same way. I mean, in, in one sense, all living entities are equal. The Javanai is Sampanai, Brahmani, Gavihasmi, Shuni, Chayva, Chapati, Chayva, So the, the sage, they don't see a difference between a cow, an elephant, a dog, and a dog eater. And that doesn't mean that they use a, a dog to plow their field instead of an ox. It doesn't mean that they're going to use a cow battle instead of an elephant. And it doesn't mean that they're going to invite a dog to eat in their house instead of a ramen. So although everybody's spiritually equal, still there's some differences externally in how one deals with them. And even more refined, that although all devotees are wonderful and one should have loving and six loving exchanges with anyone who's a devotee, and still there's distinction. I used to go to Christian conventions on education when I was running a school. And I remember one time they had a big sign up, everyone who loves Jesus should love everyone who loves Jesus. Instead of like the Catholics and Protestants killing each other. So certainly we should love all devotees, and that includes not only the devotees within our, our own ISKCON movement or within our own temple or within our own little whatever, but it includes anyone who's a devotee of God. Yet there's distinction. So let's look at text. One should mentally honor the devotee who chants the holy name of Lord Krishna. One should offer humble obeisances to the devotee who has undergone spiritual initiation, Diksha and is engaged in worshipping the deity, and one should associate with and faithfully serve that pure devotee who has advanced an undeviated devotional service and whose heart is completely devoid of the potential to criticize others. All right. Now, we should know here that there's many, many different ways of delineating stages of devotion. This is not the only way. Rupa Goswami here is dividing the devotees into three categories, <coughs> which we normally call Kanista, Majjima, and Uttama. That Majjima means middle, superior or above ignorance, and Kanista means unsteady or a beginner. And here Rupa Goswami is giving us a very external symptom for the Kanista and the Majjima, and a little bit more difficult symptom for the Ikhya, a little bit more subtle. So for the Kanista, he say, someone who chants the holy name of the Lord. Anybody who chants the holy name. For the Majjima, he said, one who has received Diksha and is worshipping the deity. So not just received Diksha, but is acting according to Diksha and worshipping the deity. Worshipping the deity implies that one is following the rules and regulations. Not that I'm worshipping the deity, but I'm eating meat or whatever. And for the Uttama, he gives two symptoms. Undeviating devotional service, which is what we would expect, and free from the propensity to criticize others. Of all the 26 qualities of the devotees, of all of uh, that's mentioned in the 11th canto and mentioned by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Kishnathanda Swami, of all the qualities of devotees that Krishna mentions at the end of the 12th chapter in Bhagavad Gita, of the qualities of transcendence Krishna mentions in the 2nd chapter and in the 14th chapter, and the many other descriptions of the qualities of devotee all over the Bhagavatam and the Chaitanya Charitamrita, 
What does Rupa Goswami mention? Freedom of propensity to give it to others. That's the only quality he mentions other than undeviating devotion. So, all right. So this is one description. The Kanisthas chants Hare Krishna. The Majjhima has Diksha and is worshipping the deity. The Ichima has undeviated devotional service and is free from the propensity to criticize anyone. We should note, again, this is not the only way of delineating devotees. In fact, in this purport, in this very purport, and at the end of the purport to text 4, Shula Prabhupada gives a different definition of Kanishtha Majjhima and Ichima. He gives the one from the 11th canto of Bhagavatam, and this is the one that, as far as I know, I haven't done a thorough systematic study, but from my, just from my experience, I would say this is the one that Shiva Prabhupada quotes the most often, that a Kanista worships the deity but doesn't know how to treat the other devotees, and Majjima knows how to treat God with love, the devotees with friendship, the innocent with help and instruction, and the atheist with avoidance. And the Uttama is somebody who sees that everything is already perfect, everyone is wonderful, except for me. So that's a, a very different definition of Kanista, Majjima, and Uttama, and it doesn't necessarily coincide with this one given by Yusuf Swami here in the Nectar of Instruction. In other words, you're not necessarily going to find that anyone who's received Diksha and is engaged in worshiping the deity is also a Majjhima Bhakta according to the 11th Canto. Nor is it that everyone who is just chanting the Holy Name is a Kanista according to the 11th Canto description. The same goes for the Uttama, although perhaps a little less so for the Uttama. So they're, they're, it's not a one-to-one correspondence, although the same Sanskrit word should be used. The Sanskrit words just mean unsteady, middle, and topmost. They're, they're not highly descriptive words. We should also know that if we are to look at other descriptions of, say, Shraddha to Prem, many devotees have tried to take Shraddha to Prem and say, okay, which parts of this is Kanista, which parts of this is Majjana, which parts of this is Uttama? And you'd have to say, okay, first of all, Kanista, Majjana, and Uttama, by what definition? And then I haven't found anybody who can give a really strong Shastric reference by how those two things align. In the, the same way, there's another description of Kanishtha Majjhima Uttama given by Rupa Goswami himself in his Bhaktivedanta Sindhu, which again doesn't correlate one-to-one with the definition given here, where he does not use those terms, by the way, nor to the Shraddha Chitra. And that one is by degrees of faith in the Shastra. So there, Rupa Goswami is talking about the Kanishka Adhikari, the Majjhima Adhikari, and the Majjhima Adhikari, in terms of how much faith they have in the Shastra, both in terms of their own personal faith and how much they can convince others. There, Rupa Goswami is talking about beginning, middle, and ultimate in terms of the ability to start by Bhakti, which is based on faith in Shastra. So how much faith in Shastra you have is your qualification for how much you can start a process that depends upon following the Shastra conjunction. We do have to be careful when we use these terms in this dimension of the which again are not used in this particular approach, uh, how we are um, how we are defining them. What what definition are we using? Okay. All right. Now let's just look at this. Let's look at Rupa Goswami's particular definition in this verse. And, and let's hone his definition a bit. When Rupa Goswami is speaking about Diksha, we translate Diksha as initiation. 
what Shula Prabhupada did, and to some extent what Shula Bhakti said, was they took the traditional diksha and they broke it into two parts. So the traditional diksha has five parts. It has nam, which means getting the holy name of the Lord or getting your personal name. It has mantra, getting the sampradaya mantras, especially the Gopal mantra and the Kamagayatri mantra. It has some tapasya, which in some sampradayas is getting branded on the arms. Uh, what I see is Srila Prabhupada, our tapasya was a four-legged principle. It has receiving the nekti, and it has receiving the tilak. Those are the five parts. No, I'm sorry, receiving tilak and nekti. Receiving tilak and the fifth one is worshiping the deity. So if you look very carefully, look in this purport and also a number of letters, you'll notice that Srila Prabhupada is seeing what he called Harinam initiation, the first initiation, as a stepping stone to full diksha. So in Harinam initiation, one gets one's tilak. Of course, many of us, most of us perhaps wore tilak before that. One gets one's spiritual name. One is also given the Hare Krishna mantra. And one gets one's tapasya, the four regular principles. Then at what you would have called Gayatri initiation or second initiation or dominical initiation, one completes the traditional Vaishnava and Gaudiya Vaishnava Diksha by getting the Sampradaya mantras and being allowed to worship the deity. And Prabhupada says in several letters that he broke this Diksha up into two parts to specifically facilitate his dealing with people who were not born into Vaishnava culture. So the, Bhakti, the Hari Bhakti Balas says that the only way, the only way for guru and disciple to choose each other is to test each other for at least one year, minimum one year, that the disciple tests the guru and the guru should test the disciple. And what Shri Prabhupada did was after six months, he would give the Hari Nam initiation, and after another six months, he would give Gayatri, so he would give full diksha after one year. So when Rupa Goswami is talking about diksha, he's talking about what we call second initiation. And Srila Prabhupada in the purport is to some extent equating those who are chanting Hare Krishna to those who have received first initiation, although he also mentions George Harrison, who is, of course, uh, never got initiated. Now, we might wonder that, are, are these external things? When Rupa Goswami is telling us how to choose our association based on these things, is this just something external? Certainly, the Kanista and the Majjama, as described here, uh, could be, at least to a large extent, external, especially if a person would be engaged in the Magraha, following the rules without understanding the purpose and without doing it for the sake of bhakti. So, you know, if somebody's gone through ritual of first and second initiation is engaged in worshiping the deity, that they're in Majjama Bhakta. That's a question, and it's a question that we don't have much ability to discuss on this sort of a class, but it's, it's really a question. Is Rupa Goswami giving us something external? However, Srila Prabhupada discusses in the purpose that taking diction should involve material detachment as evidence in a person being willing to accept material, unpalatable situations if they help in spiritual advancement. He said one who is prepared to take diksha has to be ready to accept austerity, celibacy, and control of the mind senses as well as inquiring with relevant and useful questions. 
So Srila Prabhupada is telling us, no, this isn't fixing. Rupa Goswami is not telling us that a Majjhima Bhakta is somebody that is simply someone who sat through his family and is going through the rituals of deity worship, but somebody who's accepting austerity, celibacy, controlling their mind, controlling their body, controlling their words, asking with relevant and useful questions. And then we see that Srila Prabhupada has already said in this purport in the previous one, he describes our association with people based on how they treat others, based on the 11th canto. So Prabhupada is, is putting much, much more stress on the 11th canto description of how we determine our association rather than the one given here by Rupa Goswami. Even when, con- even when commented on Rupa Goswami's voice, his stress is to the description of the 11th canto. So obviously, Srila Prabhupada doesn't want us to take Yuki Goswami's delineation separate from the 11th candle. He wants us to consider all those factors. Like if you say, is this person mature? You know, are you only going to take the physical maturity? Is that all you're going to look at? You know, if when, uh, when people ask me about who they should marry, I always say, well, the other person should be mentally and emotionally stable. So you're not, you're not just going to look at, okay, if it's a physical object. That should be there. You don't want to marry somebody who is not physically mature. But that's not the only kind of maturity that you're looking for. So there Prabhupada's giving us the definition by dealing with the voters. So there we find the canisters, the beginners, they're somebody, they think they're better than everybody else, they think their form of worship is better than everybody else, they have a tendency to quarrel. They have a tendency to criticize. At the lowest level of kinesis, they're even killing each other. My religion is better than your religion. They don't know how to treat others. They don't have any, have any respect for others. And we should expect that because we're preachers, that a lot of people involved in Krishna consciousness and spiritual life are going to be on this level. They're going to be beginners. In one sense, you can't fall to beginner for being a beginner. No difference between a beginner and an advanced devotee other than time. So it's not that you say, okay, this is an evil person. But we respect those persons within our mind. We do not intimately associate with them. We keep them distant. Then for those who know how to have proper dealing, who know how to, know how to have discrimination, and who have some real love for Krishna, with them you can have intimacy. We can also describe the degrees by uh, the definitions by attachment to chanting. Prabhupada talks about that in the session. That we can see how, how intimate we should be with someone by how attached they are to the whole meaning. And we can also see, as we refer to in the Bhakti do by their degree of faith. If we are too intimately associated with a person who's faithless, it may also harm our own faith. And then another question which I wish we had hours and hours to discuss, is why did we think we're going on to the Uttama? Why did Ujjuko Swami pick this one quality of being free from the potential to criticize others? Why that one? Why not a host of other ones? Why not the equilibrium that Krishna stresses in the, in the body of the future? Amazing. This propensity, and you know, Ujjuko Swami is not just saying free from criticizing others. He's saying, see, from the propensity of 
This propensity to criticize others is one of the prime symptoms of our envy aggression. That is, it, we're looking right there at the root. It's such a nasty thing. And it shows up not only in very gross ways, but also in very subtle ways. And a lot of our criticisms of others may be based on Shastra. Oh, this I'm getting this person is getting me. Now, some criticism of others has to be there about the in terms of preaching. When you're a preacher, you have to say, materialistic people are foolish. You've got to say it. You've got to say, the atheists, they're, they're, they're offenders. You've got to say critical things about them. Just like if I'm giving you a map, I've got to tell you, there's got to be a sign. This is a dead-end road. You know? Roads washed out by a flood. Well, I don't want to criticize any of the roads. No, you have to. You have to. But if one is not preaching, there's no need. If I'm putting out road signs or I'm, I'm drawing a map, I've got to let you know where the dead-end roads are. I've got to let you know where the unpaved roads are. But otherwise, I just have to know for myself for how I can drive. But I don't have to go around telling anybody else. And it's the mood. It's the mood of envy. It's the mood of pride. It's a nasty thing. Right? Regular Dusko Swami says, like, baiting the urine of an ass. Or allowing a dog-eating prostitute to dance in your heart. And eaten by a tiger. With pride and with envy and defeat. Horrible, horrible. Until that's cleaned, one is put on the top most spot. Alright, we might also ask in this connection, although this is not the, the focus of this verse, how can I elevate myself? How can I come to a higher platform? The, the focus of this verse is choosing between my person, looking at others. But of course, we also want to look at ourselves. I can elevate myself by chanting without offense, by taking shelter with each of the other by not imitating. I'm not imitating. Now, what's the difference between pushing ourselves to advance and imitation? So, I don't know why I like to use map examples so often, but if I was going to go from here to the beach and I ask somebody for a direction, they have to know where I'm starting. If I give a false start place, then I'll get false directions. So if we pretend to be more advanced than we are, then the, the way of acting for us will be inappropriate. We especially see this happening with people who want to be renunciates when really they should get married. This is particularly, we see this over and over and over again. Well, if being a renunciate is the best thing, it must be the best for me, and it must be the best for me. So this, this is perhaps the most common way that we see people imitating an advanced devotion. No. You see over and over again. If you take your renunciation prematurely, you'll either fall down or you'll become hard-hearted or you're dealing with others with you too. In some way, it will actually impede your Krishna consciousness instead of helping you. 
And again, we've seen this over and over. If I don't have the uh, honest starting place, then I won't, I'll think I'm supposed to turn left or go straight when I'm really I'm supposed to turn right and I'll end up in the wrong place. Therefore, Krishna says, you know, renunciation based on fear, it won't give you the, or troublesome, oh, it's so troublesome, I don't want to have children because there's so much trouble. It won't give you the fruit of, of renunciation. Imitating an advanced devotee, we also see people jumping to intimate Radha Krishna Lila. So they haven't even read Bhagavad Gita. They're not even chanting 60 rounds, so, you know, they're smoking marijuana or whatever, and they're reading about Radha Krishna Lila. So instead of helping one to advance, that would simply degrade one. Of course, we can read about, we can read Prabhupada's book, the distributed Krishna book, and Chaitanya Charitamrita to the public in general. But to have a focus on Radha Krishna reading is kind of having only eating blood drinks or you know, So we should certainly push ourselves to go to the next step under the guidance of Guru, under the guidance of Shastra, being honest about what we want. Okay, we don't have much time. Jusai Swabhava Janitarva Pusascha Joshar Naprakritatsamiha Bhaktya Janashya Pasyat Gangam Basamna Kalubudbuda Pena Pankar Brahma Dravata Mapagatcha Timira Dharmai Being situated in his original Krishna conscious position, the pure devotee does not identify with the body. Such a devotee should not be seen from a materialistic point of view. Indeed, one should overlook a devotee's having been born in a low family, a body with a bad complexion, a deformed body, or a diseased or infirm body. According to ordinary vision, such imperfections may seem prominent in the body of a pure devotee. But despite the seeming defects, the body of a pure devotee cannot be saluted. It is exactly like the waters of the Ganges, which sometimes during the rainy season are full of bubbles, foam, and mud. The Ganges waters do not become polluted. Those who are advanced in spiritual understanding will bathe in the Ganges without considering the condition of the water. So here Rupa Goswami is telling us what we should, how we should not discriminate. He said, you know, discriminate upon, are you, are you chanting the name of the Lord? Do you have diksha? Are you always engaged in devotional service, really from the propensity to criticize others? We've looked at other ways of discriminating. But the way you don't discriminate is what kind of body does this person have? Is it a low-born body? It doesn't matter. Is it a deformed body? Doesn't matter. Is it an ugly body? Doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. The body is irrelevant. It can even be an animal body. Hanuman's not human. Jatayu's not human. Jatayu's a bird. Not only is Jatayu a bird, he's a nasty bird. He's a vulture. Low bird, disgusting bird. Doesn't matter. And not only is Hanuman an animal, he's a monkey. Monkeys are troublemakers. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. In my sociology class that I give at Bhaktivedanta College, one of the things we talk about is class stratification in a society and to what extent that, that stratification is something you're born with or something that you can change, ascribe or achieve, describe status of what you're born with, achieved is what you can achieve. Ascribe status with things like your gender, your race, uh, your family, and achieve status is how much money you earn in your life, how much education you earn in your life, things like that, in terms of social status. So we talked about whether or not in, uh, in practicing Krishna consciousness in our society, we have ascribed or achieved status. 
And we came to the conclusion that we have very few ascribed statuses. That to be recognized as a devotee to Hutchins societal status, uh, we don't seem to discriminate whether you're Indian or whether you're Polish or whether you're Peruvian. We don't distinguish so much if you're old or young. We don't distinguish based so much on your family, a little bit maybe, but not so much. Certainly not racial characteristics, black or white or oriental. Uh, we only could come up with one ascribed status that is perpetuated in the devotee society. Maybe you can think about what it is. I won't tell you right now. For um, but we can only think of one area in which there is uh, strong discrimination about spiritual status and spiritual advancement that's based wholly and solely on the body. But here Rupa Goswami is telling us, don't be. The bodily defects, they come from past karma or the will of Krishna. Prabhupada warns us that the neophyte devotees cannot judge properly. So the neophyte devotees will judge on the body. Oh, there's an old Indian man with a long beard who must be advanced. Prabhupada makes an astonishing, astonishing statement in this book. He said, as soon as anyone becomes envious, he falls from the platform of Parmahamsa. Wow. No matter how elevated you are, if you're envious, you fall. And what's Prabhupada describing is envious? Looking at others from the point of view of the body. That's a lesser person based on the body. Prabhupada said, no one should be proud. Prabhupada said that, that Goswami is born in Nordich and his family, in Adwaitacharya's family. They shouldn't be proud. We're the only Vaishnavas. These Westerners can't be Vaishnavas. And he says, the Westerners that I've made into sannyasis, they shouldn't be proud. Thinking, oh, we're so much better than those Casco Swamis. No one should be proud. If we're proud, there's no... Can't even get past the northern river. Can't enter into the doorway of Nishta if one is proud. And if we... Uh, Focus on the platform of the body, we will be committing Vaishnava. Quoting here is like a mad elephant. Oh, that person's not a good devotee because they're only 10 years old. That person's a good devotee because they're born in a Vaishnava family, Indian, whatever. Right? Of course, I hope by now you figured out the one area where there's a lot of heavy discrimination, spiritual discrimination based on the body, and that is that of gender. Although this is decreasing, it's certainly still there. That there's a lot of spiritual service, nothing to do with anything material, that in many places of the Vaishnava world are denied to persons based on their gender. Although we don't see that there's any other bodily distinction that is ever. I don't see that there's other bodily distinctions that are applied. So somehow, spiritually, materially, one has to discriminate. Obviously, obviously, a five-year-old can't be driving a truck. But could a five-year-old have all the spiritual facility if they were spiritually advanced? The answer should be yes, at least according to Shastra. So on a material platform, yes, of course you have to discriminate. If somebody has an, an infirm body, or deformed body, there's going to be certain kinds of material work that they cannot do. Right? If somebody's a quadriplegic in a wheelchair, you're not going to ask them to you know, bring the bogan in from the truck and put it away in the kitchen. 
So on a material level, there's distinctions between man and woman, there's distinctions between old and young, there's distinctions between culture, and in terms of the material service we can offer to Krishna, there's distinctions. But on the platform of the spiritual service we can offer to Krishna, there should be no distinction. And in my experience, again, is that uh, we do this very well in ISKCON when it comes to race, class, family of origin, age, uh, IQ level. We don't do it very well when it comes to gender. Why we specifically struggle with gender uh, is another question which we don't have time to address since our time is coming to a close. And we can say that if we offend Vaishnavas, then instead of properly having the six loving exchanges, we image our spiritual lives. When Bhakti Nautakur discusses defending Vaishnavas, he says it's an offense not to feel joy upon seeing the Vaishnava, any Vaishnava. So we should think about the good qualities of the Vaishnavas and meditate on our own faults rather than our own good qualities and others' faults. Okay, let's go through just a quick summary here. So again, the first three verses, we dealt with getting our own act together, being somebody who knew how to associate with others. Then these verses today, the first was, okay, now that we have our act together, we have the loving exchanges, the food, gifts, and competences, which are needed in all relationships, which are the basis for ISKCON, and which should be avoided on an intimate level with atheists and my body. How do we determine with whom to have these exchanges, to what degree of intimacy. So by, by their, uh, their dedication, which is evidenced by initiation, their willingness to do austerity, to what extent they follow the, instruct- the instructions of their guru, not just making a show, and to what extent they are properly inquisitive. And the ultimate basis for all advancement and all deciding of what level someone's at is their dedication to the holy name. How not to determine who's a devotee, we determine by advancement, but not by the body. Otherwise, it's an offense against Vaishnavas, and we can fall down even if we're a Paramahamsa. Our little quote is loving, a little poetry. Loving exchange with the Vaishnavas are six. No Vaishnavas three, and how with them we mix, based on their faith, but not their bodies. Huge. Okay, I have a little bit of time for questions. I have a whole lot of time. I just have a little bit of time. Does anybody have any questions? Okay, I unmuted everybody. I'd like, I'd, I'd like to ask a question, uh, Mother Irmala. Um, I've always been a little bewildered because you were speaking about um, the intimacy of devotees and loving exchanges, etc. Could you enlighten me a little bit about um, the example that Mahaprabhu set with his own wife, Vishnu Priya? Uh, Prabhupada was very specific about the fact that he, he never even joked with her except for uh, one exception. There was some small thing where uh, something about they were looking for something, and, and he yes, said to yes. said to Sachimata, uh, you know, perhaps your daughter-in-law has taken it. But that's the only example, and, and, and Prabhupada's very specific, said that's the only joking we saw in his whole life, uh, with, with, in his whole household life. Uh, with his wife, so it's that seems a little, you know, kind of cold or impersonal, which I'm sure it wasn't. So maybe you could enlighten us a little bit. Well, con- considering that, uh, you know, I, I was not in Sachi Devi's home, seeing the interaction between Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his wife. My only basis for speaking about this are the accounts we have. We particularly have the Chaitanya Mangal and the Chaitanya Bhagavat, 
that explains Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's dealings with Lakshmi and with Vishnu Priya. And we certainly see a lot of tenderness and affection, although we don't see frivolity. And if, if you read those descriptions, it will talk about how, uh, how they were having loving pastimes with each other. Mm. So it's, it's definitely described in that way. Even just okay. how Chaitanya Mahaprabhu first met Lakshmi when they were children, and that such, such sweet exchanges. So there's not a whole lot of description of the Lord uh, as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu dealing with his wives. Uh, perhaps, and this is just a, a perhaps, that is because the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's wives are in the Vaikuntha mood. They're seeing him as Gaur Narayana. And that's not the main thrust of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's purpose of incarnating. Hmm. The main thrust of his purpose for incarnating is to give Raj Bhakti and to show the relationships among the residents of Vrindavan and not to show so much the relationships among the residents of Vaikuntha. And that may be one reason by why the biographers don't stress. In, in fact, one thing that strikes me going from the other direction is when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu takes sannyas, there is mostly descriptions of how Sachi Devi is suffering in separation, but not Vishnu Priya. The, the emphasis is all on Sachi Devi after the Lord takes sannyas. But that's, that's my only guess about the reason for that. But you, you will find, you certainly will find, uh, not in Chaitanya Charitamrita, but you will find in Chaitanya Bhagavat and Chaitanya Mangala, and there's one other book also, which Varshana Swami translated. Remember the name of that book? Remember the name of it? Uh, a wonderful book about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, where there's, there are detailed descriptions of Vishnu Priya, what does she look like in the morning, what are her activities, how is she relating with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu during the day, and it's certainly very, very sweet, and very, very loving, and very, very affectionate. But it wasn't frivolous. Uh, the only time we find that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, it's the only time, the main time we find that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is frivolous is when he's a young boy. Mm-hmm. You know, and there he's really joking with the, the young girls who are making the offering, and with the Brahmanas chanting their Gayatri, and he, he's like, you know, Mr. Frivolous. Mm-hmm. But... Later on, especially once he goes to Gaia, he's, you really don't see that very much. You see it a little bit in his later pastime, like with the pilu fruit pastime, or with the giving of Sarvabhamacharya prasadam early in the morning. Um, a few things here and there, but, but not so much. Not so much. You don't... Uh, that, 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 that kind of joking and playfulness that we see in the mood of Krishna... We don't see that so much in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in general, except when he's quite young. Thank you for the wonderful class, Brother Arma. I have uh, three questions. Maybe I can get in one. Uh, hmm. I thought the example that you gave of uh, you know, if you're going to save a drowning person, then usually you're going to save their clothes, too. I thought that was an excellent example. Oh, thank you. However, in my own experience, I, the only way I have been able to safely associate with devotees is uh, by talking about Krishna Kata. Uh, and now I can guess that's because I am on, on such a low platform 
that, you know, whenever there's other exchanges, then it turns out to be a wreck. But especially when I, I'm like trying to be compassionate, I want to help the devotees somehow or the, you know, in their material situation, the moment I even touch that, it turns into a disaster. Well, maybe that's just not your particular Prabhu Datadesh. The main people who are responsible for seeing that the physical needs of people are provided for are Ksatris. That's their main service to the Lord. To make sure that people have proper schools and roads and water and medical care. You know, everything they need for their material life. That's particularly the purview of the Ksatris. Of course, we should all this is a, as a extended family and as a community, you should all try to do things for people. I mean, I don't know. You just had a program at your house the other night. We all ate very nicely. We didn't go away hungry. So maybe a little too hard on yourself. It wasn't that we went to your place and there was only Krishna Kittar and we didn't get anything to eat. You took care of our material needs too. Gave us a nice place to sit down. The house wasn't too cold or too hot. Everything was clean. It wasn't that you only gave us Krishna to talk. I mean, you took care of us on all levels. Even this, this, this Skype conferences. Not only, you know, you're arranging the material side of it too. You're trying to arrange that the technology works right, that the sound quality is good. You're not just looking at the spiritual content. So I think you're a little hard on yourself. But it, that may not be your main service. You know, people, the people who have that as their main service are generally Kshatriyas. Or, you know, sometimes there's Brahmanas whose main service may involve giving a lot of psychological counseling. But certainly we should all, we should all care about them. It's not, very, it's not very easy to accept spiritual guidance from someone who doesn't care in a holistic way. But anyway, I think you do. I, I, that's my experience. Thank you. I'll wait for my other two questions. Anybody else? I had just a really quick question. Carlos, if you here? Yes. The sound cut out when you were mentioning the five parts of Diksha, and it got scrambled, and I couldn't hear exactly what you said so if you could repeat oh okay sure i'd love to repeat that so the five parts of diksha are nam which can mean getting your name you know you are now krishna das it can also mean receiving the holy name chant the Hare krishna mantra another part is tapasya so there's some traditional tapasya of like getting branded as far as i understand Srila Prabhupada's uh, uh, tapasya he gave his diksha was following the four regular principles. There's tilak, receiving the tilak of your sampradaya. So those three things Prabhupada gave at what he called first initiation. Then the other two parts of diksha are receiving the sampradaya mantras. So that's what we call our Gayatri mantras. So our sampradaya mantras, of course, we have our guru and Goranga mantras. And then we have the Gopal Mantra and the Kamas Ayati Mantra. The last part of Diksha is engaged in worshipping the deity. 
being trained in worshiping the deity. So when all those five things are there, one has received Diksha. And what Srila Prabhupada did, and he explains it in the purport to text five here, to verse five here, he also explains it in a number of letters and a number of places, is that Prabhupada said because he was giving Diksha to people who weren't born in Vaishnava families, he divided it into two parts. So instead of giving all five parts of Diksha at one time, he gave three after six months, and then the other two after another six months. The Hari Bhakti Balas says that you have to wait one year. The guru has to wait one year before giving Diksha to a disciple. Not has to, but should. Obviously, there are exceptions. And Sanatana Goswami, in his commentary on Hari Bhakti Balas, says that the guru can choose the time and place, and if the guru has chosen it, then everything is auspicious. So, you know, Prabhupada initiated a boy in Russia after just three days for his visa. Uh, but Prabhupada's general policy was six months waiting for first initiation and six months, another six months for second. And Prabhupada did this specifically that before giving full diksha, he was, wanted to see whether or not his devotee could follow the basic tapasya. Uh, my point was that what the diksha that Rupa Goswami is referring to in this verse refers to the full diksha, all five items, which would be what Srila Prabhupada called second initiation, or Brahminical initiation, or Gayatri initiation. Right. Thank you. You're welcome. Beauty worship is the one that I missed. <laughs> ah. Yeah, I have a question. Uh, we were You were talking about Lord Chaitanya's wives. And, uh, was Vishnu Priya, or like, uh, his two wives, are they Lakshmi Devi, or who are they? Uh, the first wife who died very soon after he married her is Lakshmi. They're both Lakshmi Devi, and his second wife, Vishnu Priya, is Bhu Devi. So my question is, is Lakshmi Devi, I thought she wasn't allowed to enter Krishna Lina, or is Chaitanya Lila same as Krishna Lila? It's Lakshmi Devi always wants to... Yes and no. Yes and no. Yeah? Uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu deals with the devotees from, who have a Vaikuntha mood. Also, some of his devotees are devotees of Ramchandra, like Anupama and Narayi Gupta. So, same but not the same. For example, in Chaitanya Lila, the devotees are related to him almost exclusively in Dasira. So there's Chaitanya Mahaprabhu doesn't have devotees related to him in Madhurya Ras other than his two wives. Whereas Krishna has so many devotees who are related to him in Madhurya Ras and Sakya Ras and Bhatsal. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, of course, he has his mother and father and some elderly persons, but the predominating Rasa with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Dasya which is like by Kunti. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is a little different. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is a little different. Thank you. Um, Mother Ermala? Yes. This is Maharani Devi Dasi. Hey, um, in You were uh, talking about uh, Sri Chaitanya Mangala. The one yes. is the one by um, translated by um, Subhag Swami. Is that in our line? Is that yes. our book? Yes. Well, in that book, he's um, Lord Chaitanya tells his mother that the his first wife, Lakshmi Devi, was actually yes. an Apsara that used to dance in the heavenly pl- palace of Indra. 
I don't recall reading that, but you could I, can, I can read it to you. It's a very short paragraph on page one. Uh, but anyway, that may be so, just like the Pandavas. The Pandavas are described as existing both in the heavenly planet and eternally in Vaikuntha. And this is very nicely explained in the Brihad Bhagavatamrita, where Gop Kumar finally says to Narada Muni, says, I see you everywhere. Where do you live? <laughs> he says, I see you in the, in the heavenly planets. I see you in Vaikuntha. I see you in the spiritual Dwarka. You know, and... And Narada Muni says that many of us exist in many places. So like it, the, in the Mahabharata, it explains that the Pandavas went to heaven. In the Bhagavatam, it explains they went to the spiritual world. So they exist in both places, as does Hanuman, as does Narada. Jopadi is often described as also a resident or a goddess of fortune in the heavenly planet. So Prabhupada wrote a very nice letter about how the pure devotees can also expand themselves. I mean, haven't you ever wanted to do that? Haven't you ever wanted to be in two places at once? When I used to go to school as a kid, I used to want to have, you know, one expansion listening to the teacher and the other expansion at the beach. So I think that's that's something that the devotees can do. Therefore, they may be described differently in different places. All right, I need to go cook breakfast. Thank you very much. All glories to Shiva Prabhupada. All glories to Rupa Goswami. Jai. Jai. Hare Krishna. Thank you very much for the coming. And thank you, everyone, for being here. There was uh, a third Kapadi zone today. And sorry about the technical difficulties. We'll work on them. All right. Srila Prabhupada, he died. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just. Haribo. Haribo. Haribo.